Thanks, Isaac. Appreciate that. Here is your opener. All right. Um, he said this morning, he, we were leaving this morning, he said, I got, I, I got a few jokes. I'm like, are they all at my expense? He said, most of them. I said, great. Okay, that's what I expected. But uh, go ahead. Thanks, Isaac. Appreciate that. Uh, we're going to be in 1 John today. So uh, if you have your Bible, please open to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you, then grab one from under your seat. There should be one under your seat or a seat right near you. And 1 John chapter 3 in that Bible under your seat will be about page 1022. 1022, if you want to turn there. Yes, thank you for that demonstration. Someone just brought a kid in and pointed it to me. Kids, you can head out to Kids Adventure. If there's anyone in here grades kindergarten to grade five, you can head out to Kids Adventure. That was a close one, right, guys? You thought you were going to be stuck in here the whole time. Whew, thank you to Elizabeth. Just save those kids. Maybe literally save those kids. I don't know what they're talking about in kids' church today, but hopefully Jesus. So may literally have just saved those kids. But anyway, thanks for being in here, kids. Uh, page 1022 in your Bible. We're going to be in First John. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you today, this morning, just asking that you would quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. Lord, there's so many things that come into our minds and our hearts these days, and it's hard to keep them at bay. Lord, there are glowing electronic rectangles in front of us trying to get our attention. There are other things that are trying to capture our minds and our hearts right now. But Lord, would you for these next few moments quiet those things down and Lord, allow us to hear from you. Lord, as we open up your word, we believe it is the eternal word of God that is words to life. And so we need to pay attention and to hear them, Lord. So help us, Lord, to hear what we need to hear. Open our hearts and our minds to hear what your spirit wants to say to your church today. And Lord, we ask that you to do this so we make ourselves available to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of comedians, um, one of my favorite comedians, Jim Gaffigan, he has a bit about uh, things that surprise us that shouldn't surprise us. You ever get surprised by something that you know you shouldn't be surprised by? Like you should have seen it coming, you should have expected it. He has a bit about living in places that get cold and we're still surprised that winter comes every year. Right? You know, it's warm now, but you know, that first day you wake up and you see your breath in front of you and you're like, wow, what is this, like every year now that this is happening? And it's, it's cold and Gaffigan's like, you know, winter, it's coming to kill us. And it feels like that sometimes. But we shouldn't be surprised by it, right? I mean, we live in New England, we live in Massachusetts, it's going to get cold. And we're going to get cold. There are things that sometimes surprise us that shouldn't surprise us. Dave Ramsey talks about this too, Financial Peace University founder, Dave Ramsey. He says, when you're planning your finances, like there are things that sometimes people think surprise them that shouldn't surprise you. Uh, Christmas is going to come every year. It shouldn't surprise you. Most of the time it's going to fall in December. You're probably going to want to buy gifts. Like don't let that surprise you. Plan for it in your budget. 
there are things that sometimes surprise us that shouldn't really surprise us. We come to 1 John chapter 3 this morning and we hear something that John says, don't be surprised by this. Don't let this surprise you. But I think sometimes it surprises us. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That was a fun Sunday morning thought, right? Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, I think are included in here, that the world hates you. What's John saying here? He's saying, look, if you're going to follow Christ, if you're going to be a Jesus follower, if you're going to be someone who loves Jesus and lives for Jesus, then don't be surprised that the world hates you. And yet sometimes, now some of you hear that actually, some of you hear that and you're like, yep, know that, got that, that happened this week, right? Maybe work, maybe school, maybe a family relationship, maybe a friendship. Maybe over the last couple of years, you had some relationships that ended or walked out and it may have been because you're committed to Jesus and your commitment to Jesus caused you to live a certain way, to act a certain way. And they said, I don't think we can be friends anymore. Or maybe you've lost family relationships. So it's not a surprise to you that it happens, that it's happened when I say that this morning. But sometimes I think we are surprised. I remember hearing a story several years ago. I was listening to a president of a Christian college. And he was sharing about some of the things that uh, he experienced as he was president of this, this college. And he said there was a time when one of the local newspapers ran a story that was not favorable to them at all um, and made them look really bad right in the paper. It caught some traction. It became a real popular story. Many people were reading it. Essentially, uh, they grabbed on to their stance, their biblical stance of marriage and, and sexuality, and they took it and, and ran a story that uh, intended to make the college look bad in people's eyes and, and give a bad reputation. And the president, this president was concerned. He said, well, you know, this isn't quite, yes, we have a biblical stance on marriage and sexuality, but this isn't telling, you know, this isn't telling of who we are and how we love people and and uh, so he thought, I need to at least talk to some people. There are some people that I may need to, you know, at least make sure they understand the whole picture of who we are, especially a local, local politicians. And so he called up one of his representatives that he thought may have read the story and wanted to make sure he got to kind of tell his side of it. And he called up this particular representative and said, hey, I'm, you may have read this story and and I just want to, you know, let you know this, you know, this doesn't tell our whole story. It doesn't tell who we are completely. It's not in the local representative, um, uh, not local. They were state level, I believe, state level representative. And they said, um, let me stop you right there. He said, you, you don't need to say anything. He said, you need to understand, I fundamentally disagree with your stance on this issue and I am committed to seeing you and your organization completely shut down. And that, I think, came as a surprise. And yet John says, don't be surprised, brothers, when the world hates you. And so 
as you follow Christ, and if you're committed to Christ, you live in a world, and you're living in a world that isn't, John says, don't be surprised that the world hates you. What does that mean for us? I want to talk about this morning for a few minutes of why this shouldn't surprise you. Why is it the case that following Christ, that commitment to Christ, would put you in a place where you may be hated by the world, those who don't follow Christ, those who choose not to? And secondly, and spend a little more time on what should our response be? Because I think a lot of people have an idea on what the response should be. But John gives us a response in this passage that I think may be very different than the one you and I would expect. But first of all, why? Why are you hated? Why are why Christians, why are followers of Jesus hated by the world? We're going to look at 1 John chapter 3. And I think this might uh, explain a little bit uh, about why that's the case. Is you are separate from the world because you've experienced love from outside of the world. You've experienced a love that comes from outside the world. The reason, if you're a follower of Jesus, why you're different and why I'm different is because you have experienced a love that the world, many in the world, have, that they have not experienced if they have not experienced the love of God. John says it this way, 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Here's what it says. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John, in the beginning of chapter 3, he says, look, there's a, you're living in a world that doesn't know you. As he progresses, chapter 3, verse 13 is the one I read that says, you're living in a world that, don't be surprised, is going to hate you. Unknown and hated is what he says when you're living in the world. So come follow Jesus and you can be unknown and hated. It's quite an invitation, isn't it? But that's what John says. When you choose to follow Jesus, that's a bit what you're signing up for. The world won't know who you are. They won't know who you really are. Certainly not as a child of God. And the world, at times, you may be hated. And don't be surprised by it. But the reason is, is because John says you've experienced a love that the world hasn't experienced. So you're going to be fundamentally different. And different, that difference is going to cause a separation. And that separation may cause dislike, unknown, and even hate. Light has no fellowship with darkness. They're fundamentally different. So John says, don't be surprised by this situation. He starts out chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. That word kind is a Greek word, potapen. And it was used in the first century, uh, carries the image of when a ship was coming into the town. One of the things that people would do is they want to know, they, they say potapen, what kind is it? What country is it from? Where is it from? It would be coming and they would say, is, you know, looking at the sails and things, is it our own ship or is it a ship from a 
foreign country that maybe we can trade with or learn from? Or is it a ship from a country that maybe we're at war with or enemies with? They want to know what kind is it? And John uses that same word here when he's saying what kind of love the Father has put, given us, or the NIV, I like the NIV's translation better of this word, what kind of love has the Father lavished upon us? It's like, as John's saying, it's like love from another country. It's like you, you couldn't even recognize it here. It's so different. It comes from another place. And so if you've experienced that, it shouldn't surprise you that those who haven't are going to feel different from you and not get you. It's a little bit like the story Isaac told this, this morning when he's talking about giving, that his friend's like, I don't get it. Why would you give 10% to the church? That doesn't make any sense. Of course it's not going to make any sense. You haven't experienced that same love. You're not, you're not, you haven't gone down that road and experienced that, so it shouldn't make any sense to you. But still yet it surprises us, this difference that sometimes pops up. Many of you are from a, another country, and, and you might try and tell me about, Let me, here's what my country's like, and I might get a little bit of it, but if I haven't experienced it, if I haven't been there, I'm not going to get it like you get it. And that's kind of like John's saying. He's saying this love of the Father that you've experienced, it's like a love that comes from another country. And those that haven't experienced it aren't going to get it. And there's going to be a separation that it's going to create. There's a difference that it creates. It actually is such a love that you get to be called a child of God. And I think we take that for granted. Of how, of, you know, sometimes the scriptures will call you a son of God. And, and you... Women, I would say, don't get offended by that term because the Son of God is a legal term. And it's basically saying you are the one who receives the inheritance. You are, you, you are and, and whether you're a man or a woman, as you follow God, you, are, you receive the inheritance that God has set aside. God has set aside an inheritance for you. And by the way, at times the scripture calls us the bride of Christ. So men, you have to deal with that one. Um, you are the bride of Christ. But in this case, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a word of legality. It's a word of intimacy. You're a child of God. I read a story this week of a missionary who was trying to translate. He was translating this passage into another language. And he had a Hindu youth that was with him, a, that was doing the translating for him into this language. And he got to this passage that you are called children of God, and the, uh, his translator translated it that we should be allowed to kiss his feet. That was the translation he gave to it. And the missionary asked, he said, why, why, why don't you translate what I'm saying? Why, why don't you say it? it's children of God? And his response was, children of God, that is much too high. Like he couldn't even believe or imagine a God that would call humans, adopt them to be his children. And that's how great this love is. 
And, and, and if you follow Jesus, you have not signed on to a doctrinal statement of belief. Like that's not what it's about. It's about being in relationship with a God who adopts you into his family and calls you his child. And if you have experienced that love, it's going to differentiate you from someone who never has. And they're not going to, John's like, it's like they're not even going to know. They're not going to know who you are. They're not going to get it. They're not going to know that you're a child of God. And it's going to create a difference. And it also means that we should not be surprised when people in the world do not live like people who follow God. Somehow this seems to surprise us sometimes. But it shouldn't. There's a differentiation. Those who follow God should look different. And it's because we've experienced a love that is unlike anything in this world. So how are we supposed to respond? If we're in this world and don't be surprised that this world hates you, how do you respond to the hate? If this differentiation is caused and it's going to be there, how do you respond? Well, you might respond by just, well, I'm going to change the way I'm living or maybe you're going to try and change what you believe. I'm going to try and live in such a way that people will like me more. I'm going to live in such a way that somebody would maybe not hate me. I mean, that's one option, right? I could change what I believe, change the way I act, change what I say, and maybe, maybe that causes some people not to dislike me quite as much. Well, I think to respond to that, let's just back up a couple verses into chapter 2. And I don't have these on the screen for you, but if you have your Bible, you can see them in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, just backing up a little before this passage. And it says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Yep, we can change the way you believe. You can change the way you act. You can try and make it a little more palatable to the world around you. But John says it puts you in a position that when Jesus comes and you're standing before Jesus, that there's, uh, there's shame that goes along with that we would shrink back. Because we know we have not been living the way that Jesus calls us to and the way that we are supposed to be living. I think in this passage, John is doing what we've said John did a couple other times. I think he's trying to take our minds right back to Genesis again. If you remember in Genesis with Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit that God told them not to eat, they ate of the tree that God told them not to eat of, what does it say? It says they, they were ashamed and they hid. They covered themselves. That sounds like shrinking back, doesn't it? God comes walking in the garden and they're ashamed and they hid. And John says, Jesus comes back again. And if you're living in a way that you know you shouldn't be, you're going to shrink back in shame. And John's using that same imagery to say, no, Jesus is righteous and those who follow him are called to live a righteous life. That really isn't an option that we're going to make the way that we live or believe more accommodating to people around us in order to maybe not be hated as much. That's not an option John gives, God gives us, or the Bible gives us. So how do we respond? How do we respond? 
Your response to the word, before, don't go to the next slide just yet. I want you to fill it in in your own head. I want you to fill, oh, look at that. Angie, you created that in between services. Nice job. Your response to the world's hatred is to, how would you fill in the blank? How would you fill in the blank? The world hates you and don't be surprised at it. So you should. I wonder what your mind is filling in the blank right there. Hate them back. Um, I don't know. So you should ignore them. So you should love them. I hear a lot of yeses on that. That's not what the passage says. (laughs) Your response to the world's hatred is to love one another the way the Father loves you. That may not be what we would expect to hear, but that's actually what John says. John actually says, now certainly there are places when the Bible talks about you need to love your enemy. You need to love those who hate you. You need, Jesus said that. That's in there. But this passage, John is very specific about the fact that when you are hated, the very next verse says that we're to love each other. Let's look at the context. 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 16. Here's what it says. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. That's the verse we read, right? 3.13. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Very next verse. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Love each other. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And again, if I asked you to fill in the blank on those next words, I know what I would fill in. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for him. But that's not what it says. By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for each other. So in this verse it says, your response to God's love for you ought to be loving each other. And your response to the world hating you ought to be loving each other. That that is the response that we ought to have to being hated by the world and it's the response that we ought to have to God's awesome love for us, a love for each other. And you say, well, why does that make any sense? The world doesn't know the love of the Father, right? Remember that? It comes from another country. It's otherworldly. It's outside of this. But they long for it. Because there's something in all of us that longs to be loved in that way. That longs for a God to love that will know us. That will forgive our sins that we know we have and love us. And there's a longing for that. And they should see it in the way the church loves each other. How do they see it in the world? 
They can't see the love of the Father, except they see it in the way his followers love each other. And it demonstrates to a world that will hate you what love really looks like. In fact, in our day and age, I would say it demonstrates to a world that thinks it knows what love is. And quite frankly, thinks it knows better than the church what love is. That if we would live the way that God has called us to live, laying down our lives even for each other, that the world would say, that's the kind of love I've been looking for. That's the kind of love that I want. That's the kind of love I need to find out more about and how to get that love. That the response to a world that hates you is a to love one another, to demonstrate the love of God, to be, have that love that's laying down our life for each other. That's what Jesus demonstrated for us. That's what following Jesus and taking up our cross looks like. But many of us, many in this world might give us a different response of what, how we need to respond. Many in the world may choose a more violent response to the world's hatred. English romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge said this. He said, I have several times seen the stiletto and the rosary come out of the same pocket. Stiletto not meaning a woman's shoe. But a dagger, right, where that comes from. That's that dagger, right? That I've seen violence and the rosary or prayer or commitment to God come out of the same pocket. And how often out of the same mouth or out of the same heart these two things seem to reside. Hatred, violence, response. And yet saying we love the God who laid down his life for those who did not love him that the life that Jesus calls us to is very different than the life and the response that we're often tempted to give in our flesh or that there are even others in this world who call themselves followers of Christ that would implore us and say violence is your response or power is your response or your response is the way that they, whatever they have done to you, you ought to do to them. Maybe you don't say it that way, but it often seems to be communicated that way. That we are to respond by loving each other. Jesus said it this way in the Gospel of John. Same author recording the words of Jesus. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples. All people. The world. Outside of the church will know that you are my disciples, will know that you are followers of Jesus by the way that you love one another. That's why John, it's so important to him. I mean, John is writing, he's an elder statesman. He's probably in his 80s. All the other disciples have lost their life for the cause of following Jesus. He's the only one left. And he's experienced exile and torture himself. 
You want to talk about being hated by the world. None of us in this room have experienced it the way John experienced it. Here he is after having been boiled in hot oil, having been sent to an island to die. And he's writing to these churches saying, when the world hates you, just continue to love each other. Keep loving each other and show the world what love really looks like. If anyone had reason to lash out, it was John. If anyone had reason to respond in hatred and violence, it was John. He had seen every one of his friends killed and martyred or heard of it for the sake of Jesus. And he says, when they hate you, love each other how we respond. How do we overcome the world? Last point this morning. Your job is not to overcome the world, but to have faith in the one who already has. To put your trust in the one who already has, because when you do, you will overcome. Here's what it says in chapter 5. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Your job is to put your faith and your trust in the one who has overcome the world. John 16, again, same John, same author. He's re- recording the words of Jesus. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you ha- may have peace, Jesus said. In the world you will have tribulation. Don't let it surprise you. Why does it surprise you that you have trouble in the world? Why does it surprise you that the world hates you? Jesus never said anything clearer. In the world, you will have tribulation. He didn't even say it in a parable. He just said it clearly. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And John says, put your faith in the one who has overcome the world. That's what your response is. Your response is not in you now overcoming the world. Your response is putting your faith in Jesus who has overcome the world. What does that look like? It looks like living my life the way that Jesus lived. And it looks like actually believing the things we say we believe. That Jesus has overcome. That I do not need to fear death. That Jesus' Jesus' resurrection means I will go on living forever and this world is not all there is. That there is a reward that God has that cannot be taken away by this world. It means putting my faith in the one who said all these things and living my life as if those things are actually true. Putting my faith in the Son of God is how you overcome And yet, there are many, and there's a temptation, I think, in our own heart at times to respond differently. There are many who would say that, no, you've got to do unto others the way they have done unto you. That you have to do business the way business is being done. That you have to respond to the world and the way the world has treated you. We can be tempted to slip into worldly ways of responding instead of the Jesus ways of responding. Are we living in faith in the Son of God who overcame, or are we living in fear of a world 
and what they could do to us? Are we acting out of love for the Father or out of fear for our lives or what else might happen to us? Does our heart break for those who do not know Christ or do we just get angry at them and allow anger in our heart to fester against them? Or are we able to, like our Lord, say, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do? Are we more upset at what people are doing or that they don't know the Father's love? These are questions that we need to ask in light of this passage and these words to us. Because I think there are times where we are tempted and others would have us respond differently than Jesus would have us respond. Just this week I got a letter. It's not really a letter. It's more propaganda, I guess. I don't, I don't know that you'd call this a letter. But, and I don't know that I'm the only one that got it. I, I, uh, it was sent to me because I pastor a church in Burlington, and I would assume other pastors in the church of Burlington got it. It was sent from someone on the other side of the country um, because it had a postmark, Washington State, um, who heard about something that happened in our town uh, at one of, our, one of our schools and jumped on it as an opportunity to say, here's just another example of how this culture and what's going on in this country and here's how you should feel about it and here's how you should respond. And it is obviously, it was sent to me as a pastor. It uses God, you know, what would be language, theological language, and, uh, you know, it says, you are, one, you are the ones I pray, and uh, certainly language like that. But the message is clear. You ought to be afraid of what's going on in this world, and it ought to get you angry, and you need to respond in a certain way. And I look at that, and I get those letters, and I get something like that, and I don't see anything in what John would have us, how John would tell us to respond in this time, that you need to love one another. And do these pictures of these people, they're put there to get me angry, not to say, wow, there's someone who really needs Jesus. There's someone who really is far from God and probably has never known the Father's love. Don't hear what I'm not saying. I read something like this and I say, I agree, there are things we need to be concerned about. There are things we need to be cautious about. There are things going on, this talks about children a lot. There are things, especially when we're talking about advocating for those who can't advocate for themselves, if it's children or the unborn or the elderly. There are things we need to be concerned. We live in a country that allows us to have a voice. I'm grateful for that. We should appreciate that. So I, I, I we read that and I go, I'm with you that there, everything's not okay. There are problems. What we need to be careful about is when someone says, and here's how you should respond to the problem. And here's how you should feel about the problem. That part, I've got to say, wait a second, I need to go back to the scriptures and say, what does it tell me about how, am I supposed to feel fear or am I supposed to have faith in God that he's still at work and this world is not out of his control? 
because I can see something like that. And I think many times you would see something like that. And it's not a letter in the mail, but it is headlines across your cable news. And you're not feel filled with faith in God, but you're filled with fear and anger. And I don't believe that's the way that God would want you to be filled with those things. That we are to be filled with faith in God, not fear for what the world might do to us or what might happen. That we, our faith and our trust is in a God who has overcome the world. Jesus said, my peace I give you because I've overcome the world. I can agree on the problem, and yet I need to understand what my responsibility or my response would be. Not fear and hate, but faith. Love for each other. I know it's not, it's not the immediate response you would think of, but that's what God calls us to because we need to demonstrate what that love looks like to a world that needs it. Ultimately, the solution for a world that doesn't have God is to see for a world and more people to come to know the God who loves them. It's not going to come through changing a few laws. Again, I'm not saying, I'm grateful for the country we live in that we have an opportunity to influence those things. But that ought not be where our hope is. That ought not be what we look to as that will solve everything. I grew up at a time uh, in the church where I felt like it was communicated either overtly or covertly that if we could just get Roe versus Wade overturned, everything's going to be better. Seemed like that was what was communicated. That was the biggest hurdle. That was the biggest thing that was facing the church. That was the biggest problem we had. And I uh, have and be very clear, I am a big fan of the unborn and making sure we are doing everything we can to protect life at every level from conception to the end of life. But my ultimate hope is not in overturning a court decision. It didn't fix everything. It didn't even pull back abortions as much as the people who hoped it would thought it would. There are things we can do and work for, but they ought not be our ultimate hope. If we think that's how God is going to bring his kingdom to earth, we have not read our scriptures very well. That our confidence is in God at work, and he has already overcome the world. And so what does he call us to do? To put your faith in Jesus Christ, to live your life as he lived his life, to believe what we actually say we believe, to love one another. If we want more people to experience and if we want a greater Christian culture, it's a simple way to bring it about. You have more Christians. You have more people who know and love and serve and follow Jesus. So many times I think we think if we can just get people to live like Christians, that that's the goal. That's not the goal of what Jesus said. It's not behavior modification. It is a life changed by the love of God, experienced it and changed and given over to God. John in this passage used the word overcome. It's actually the Greek word for victory. 
And the uh, Greek word for victory, it was actually um, taken by a company you're probably very familiar with if you have a pair of Nikes. Nike actually borrowed the Greek word. It actually is the Greek word, the goddess of victory is Nike. On the top of the Acropolis, there's a small temple named Athera Nike, which means to the victor. So when you find the noun victory in the New Testament or overcomer like you do in 1 John chapter 5, find it four times in this passage, it's actually the verb form of the noun Nike. And I thought uh, one commentator gave this idea and I thought, well, that's a good idea. I'll pass it on this morning. That every time you wear your pair of Nikes or look at someone else's Nikes, that you might be reminded that your trust is in Jesus who has overcome the world. The victor who has overcome the world. That your trust is not in you, but your trust in your hope is in Jesus who has overcome the world. I'm going to ask our worship team to return and we are going to respond and close our service in worship. Here's what I think is liberating in this message. It is not your job to overcome and to fix everything in the world. It is your job to have your faith in Christ and to love one another. God has given you a part to play in his mission in the world and you ought to play it. But first and primary, your faith is in Christ and you and I are to love each other. Here's what I think we miss. Here's what I'm afraid. You, you, you might be sitting here, you're like, didn't you preach a love one another message already in this series? Yep. I'll tell you, I'm going to preach another one down the road. Because this is what John is saying in this book over and over and over and over again. And I think we in the church have taken something as almost optional that John and the Bible and God is saying is critical is essential, is mandatory equipment. I think we look at each other sitting in this room or a part of the church of Jesus Christ and we think, wouldn't it, yeah, if I got a little extra time, I'll help out that person or a little extra money I can give to that need. And John is saying, loving one another is a fundamental aspect of what you are as the body of Christ. That the world will never know what the love of God looks like if it does not see the church of Jesus Christ loving each other the way that God has created and called the church to love each other. And I think sometimes we're doing, a, we think, and uh, I'm going to step on some toes here, but I think sometimes we think we're doing a greater work of pushing back the kingdom of darkness by sending money to a lawyer in Washington, D.C. who's leading a case than we do giving money to someone in this room who needs diapers for their kid. And I think what John is saying in this passage is that you are doing a work to push back the darkness and you are doing a work to expand the kingdom of God. You are doing spiritual warfare when you are loving each other in the body of Christ, that this is the work that God has called you to, that this is the work that, that, that God longs to see his church, to, to see a body, because Jesus said, if they see you loving each other, they're going to know you're my followers because no one loved like Jesus loved. In the world that talks all the time about love, 
but I very rarely see love the way Jesus loved. Lay down your life. Jesus said, because he laid down his life for you, John say, because he laid down his life for you, you are to lay down your life for one another. So where is God calling us to do that? Where do you have opportunity to do that? This is how we respond to a world that hates us, that hates you. If you experience hate in the world, how do you respond? Continue to love those in the body of Christ that they might see what love looks like. Lord, we come before you this morning. And I have no doubt that in this room this morning, there are people who is no surprise. They experienced it this week. They experienced it in a, in a workplace, in a family. They've lost relationships. There's no doubt that it is no surprise that they at times are hated for their faith in Christ and they're living for Christ. And yet, in our flesh and in the worldly ways of thinking around us, we don't always respond rightly or even know how to respond, Lord. So Lord, help us to hear your word today. And even when it doesn't seem to make sense, the, the response in our minds, Lord, to love each other doesn't seem to be a direct following of being hated by the world. And yet, Lord, this is what you've called us to do. So show us, Lord. Help us, strengthen us to do what you've called us to do, to put our faith and our trust in you, to continue to love each other the way you've called us to love each other. Let us be that church that others outside may look and say, I may not believe what they believe, but I cannot, I cannot doubt that they love each other. And I'd love to be loved that way. Lord, help us to be a model of your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and we'll sing the song as we close today.